Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Is it possible to do something good without allowing yourself to take credit? I'm not talking about haughty expressions of socially encouraged self-deprecation. On the contrary, is it possible to do something good while knowing with absolute certainty that you are not good and that you do not deserve any credit? What is a selfless act? Some would say it is impossible. Thankfully, with God all things are possible. Richard and I discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 135 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we continue in 2 Corinthians having to endure the painful niceties of the Apostle Paul. When we're trying to get good at something and someone comes to us and says, you're doing a lousy job, <laughs> a lot of times we just feel sad. That's never happened. <laughs> Fortunately, it's never happened to me, but I've done it to other people. So um, Thank you. Thank you for trying to relate to us. <laughs> so I tell my kids, you know, you better figure out how you're going to do this. The reason why is because if you go and pull this at a job, you're going to lose your job. Right. So I'm not doing this to yell at you. I'm not doing this to make you feel sad. I'm doing this because I want you to be ready when it counts. I'm trying to prepare you. So Paul is talking about this like I'm not just getting on your case because I'm having a bad day. I've got a point to what I'm trying to say. And it's even more painful than what you've described because he's saying everything you've said with the added bonus of his main point in chapter 9, I'm whipping you for your sake. And when the good comes out of the whipping, you better not take any credit for it. The credit goes to me. It's a very tough argument. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. I know I don't need to tell you this because I know you know it. I know you've been trying. I know it's in your head. I know I've said it many times. But I'm going to say it anyway, even though I know you already know it. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, I know I'm repeating myself. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So what he's saying here is, look, I am bragging about you to the others. And the subtext is, I'm also shaming the other churches by talking about how great you are, but we know you're not great. So now there's a problem. I've used you to shame the others, to put pressure on them, but now you have to deliver, or I'm going to look bad for standing up for you, and the shaming and the pressure that I've put on them will be in vain because they'll look at you and the pressure will be off. 
You have to deliver. I've been telling everybody about what you've done. And I know that you're ready because I have seen you do good things. A lot of the complaints up to this point have been that they kind of do it, but then they stop. They say the right things, but they don't act accordingly. They might act a little bit and then pull back and act differently. I know you're capable of it, and it's because of the actual fruit that you've shown that I've bragged about you. But it's not good news that you're capable. That's the key. People hear it incorrectly. Paul will never compliments you because you're capable if he's telling you you're capable again it's the way a father tells his daughter or a coach tells a team player I know you can do this which means the real question is why aren't you doing it or you better do it or now. you better do it now and I know you're capable so if you don't do it it's either because of insubordination or laziness which is the same thing as, as insubordination but I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. I told them that you can do this. Don't make a liar out of me. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So the only one whose neck is on the line is Paul because he vouched for you. So now Paul is using that to pressure them to do the right thing. And the bad news in this chapter is that Paul has to pressure the church to do the right thing. Why should Paul have to even ask them to do what they know they should do? And they can, of course, make themselves look bad, but Paul is letting them know that the pressure is not just on them themselves, that there's pressure that's going higher up. Just like you said, Father, he vouched for them, and they now have the ability to make it a lie or the truth. And now the pressure is really on. They better make it be the truth. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness this is tough talk imagine telling someone oh were you going to send that gift that generous bountiful gift that you haven't sent yet again he's pressuring them that your gift has to be something impressive and the brethren are coming there not just because paul wants to meddle in their business or Paul wants to check up on them. Paul's got a very clear point. These brethren are going in there to get ready to go and clean house so that when the next person in charge comes to look, it's gonna be a nice tidy house. I gave you this gift, Paul says, to do the right thing, to live well with each other, to live as a unified community. And I wanna present then a unified community to the Macedonians, to the other people to whom I've been bragging about you. So the bountiful gift is what is the teaching that I gave you that's supposed to bear fruit in your good works as you live with each other in love, in submission, and in unity. And by acting accordingly then, everyone will then see the gift that was given to you. But the brethren are coming to make sure that that gift is apparent, that, that gift is obvious when people come and see the community. Now there's an important lesson here in terms of stewardship because there's obviously financial need here. Paul is dealing with a practical problem, but he's dealing with it in the service of the gospel, not even in service of the problem per se. Now, 
if he were approaching it the way pastors typically approach the problem, he would talk about a need and we could really use your help and we would really appreciate your gift and it's so wonderful to give, everything will be so wonderful if you give and this way of talking that people fall into because they are vulnerable financially. Paul is not asking for money from a position of vulnerability. He is from a position of authority pressuring them into doing what they should. Notice nowhere in this chapter does Paul talk about what they need the money for. That's not the issue. Paul is not asking from a position of need. This is very difficult for people to understand because in our culture, we really convince ourselves that a good leader is someone who needs his followers. A good parent is someone who needs their children and so forth and so on. But he is making it clear not only does he not need them or their money, but that their money needs Paul in order to be useful for the gospel. He's turning the whole system on its head. The people have to give for their own sake so they understand what generosity means because Paul was so generous with them that they need to show their own generosity. Just as in chapter 8 we saw that the poor parishes that Paul is talking about gave out of their poverty and they showed a liberality. It's like the widow's might. You know, it's not about how much the person gives. She gave out of her poverty, and that's what showed her righteousness. And so Paul is putting them in the position of the poor by taking all the joy out of their giving. And I want to stress this point, that even if they were to give a gift to the church in Macedonia, what Paul is saying is that your gift of its own accord is not enough. Because if I didn't intervene, your gift would be useless. That's a very powerful didactic statement. He is preaching the gospel through and through to the bone that the works of the flesh are to no avail. That is the Pauline school. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. By giving more for the sake of the other communities, you reap more righteousness. It's not the amount that you're giving. It's the fact that you're giving, and you're giving out of your poverty. This is not a question of accounting. If a person who makes $100,000 gives $1,000, it's not the same as someone who makes $10,000 who gives $1,000. It's $1,000 either way, right? No, because the one gave out of his wealth and the other gave out of his poverty. This is what's important. So the person who's willing to sow sparingly, and one thing we have to understand too is the agricultural metaphor here. A person gets grain, right? Well, there's two things you can do with that grain. You can eat it or you can plant it. If you eat it, it's good for the day. But if you plant it, then you're going to have a harvest later on. You wealthy Corinthians, are you willing to plant that seed or is it going to go into your own belly? Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that, of course, is the thrust of Paul's judgment against them because we've spent the first part of chapter 9 watching Paul force them to give despite themselves. He's having to pressure them. They're obviously giving begrudgingly. 
That's the challenge. And so they might give, but they still can't feel that, okay, God's going to be happy with this. No, because Paul had to whip you into shape, send a couple guys to shake you down, and then you're finally willing to give. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, which means what Paul just illustrated for them. The good deed is from the hand of God. The good deed is the produce of God's commandment. There is no credit in the good deed, but there is blessing because when you act correctly, when you sow what God has put in your hand to sow, you will reap the benefit of what God has put in your hand, which means you get the benefit, but you can't take the credit. So be thankful for the benefit, but the credit goes to the one who gave you the seed. The question that is asked all throughout scripture from Genesis through the prophets is, do you believe that God can provide for you? Do you believe it? Here's the test. When you give, are you worried that you're not gonna have enough? That's the test to see if you actually believe that God can sustain you. You have everything you need to give everything away all the time, submit to everyone each opportunity. Are you gonna do it? Because if you don't do it, it demonstrates you don't actually believe that God can provide for you. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And here Paul is quoting Psalm 112. But the point is, God was generous. God is generous for the sake of the poor, namely for your sake. What are you going to do about it? I mean, if you break this down, God scattered abroad. Every location that needs it, he can scatter there. He gave to the poor. The people who are in need got it. So God can give to any person who's in need anywhere they want it. And his righteousness endures forever, meaning he's going to be righteous forever and ever and ever. He's never going to lapse in his righteousness. He's always going to give to those who need. So if you believe in verse 9 then there is nothing stopping you from giving it all. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness again. Paul, as the proxy of Jesus Christ, who is the proxy of God the Father, was demonstrating God's function by taking credit for the gift offered by the church in Roman Corinth so that Paul could tell them ultimately all the credit doesn't go to Paul it goes to the one who supplies the seed but you show deference to the one who supplies the seed by showing deference to your teacher so Hosea says I desire mercy and not sacrifice what does this mean if you show mercy you give of your riches which is food you give to the poor sacrifice is very interesting because you give in sacrifice at the temple, but then the food is cooked and you have a party for your family. So bring all your food to coffee hour, have your coffee, have your bagels, have your cookies, and this is the agape meal we like to call it in the church, right? But this is exactly how sacrifice functioned. Mercy would be, let's get a bunch of bagels and some cookies and some coffee and take it to the homeless shelter and let them eat. That's the true agape meal. So what he's saying is, I didn't give you the riches so you could get fat and be happy about all the food you get. I gave you food 
so that you could be righteous by giving it to those who are in need. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God, meaning everything that was given you as a gift through us. And it is not so that you can thank yourselves and pat yourselves on the back and congratulate the saints. It's so that you can realize that God is the one who provides the seed and give thanks, not take credit, give thanks. And these two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot pat someone on the back for giving money to the church and then tell them, you know, thank you, you did a great job, and now we just have to give thanks to God. No, it won't work. When you get up and thank the parish, you've already demonstrated who your God is. I mean, your very service is the service of thanksgiving. Who are you thanking? My godfather used to say, I would thank you, Rich, but I would hate to take away your reward. God doesn't just provide the seed, but the sun, the warmth, the water, everything that makes it grow. And so, of course, when you are giving, when the Corinthians are giving, Paul says, God gave you the riches to give. God also gave you the teaching that you need to give. Everything that motivated and provided the goods and the instruments for righteousness, God gave. So, of course, we thank God. You were, at best, a pass-through. At worst, you were just getting in God's way. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. In other words, it's what you were saying earlier, Richard. This isn't just an agape meal for the church. You have to be thankful that you got to put something in your mouth, but then express gratitude for what you consumed by rushing out to make sure that the cup overflows for everybody else. It's just for practicing being grateful. The more you practice being grateful, the more you realize how generous God is by supplying everything you need. That's why Paul is entrapping them and, and showing them and bragging to them about how much they needed him to be successful in their gift to the church in Macedonia so he would put them in the frame of mind of being thankful. It has to work that way. The alternative is entitlement, ingratitude, and lengthy sessions with your therapist trying to figure out why you're depressed. We all know why you're depressed. It's because you're not happy with your life because you're not giving thanks to God. And thanks is not like we do in this culture, which is like the boss who says to his employee, thanks, buddy, and pats him on the back. This is a thanks where the employee says to his boss, I couldn't be here without you. I couldn't do this without you supplying me the tools I need to do what I do. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. In other words, it's not about you. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about the commandment. When Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is not speaking metaphorically. He's talking about the letters on the page. Paul is challenging them to become the evidence for the truth of the gospel, to become the evidence of God's love for mankind by doing what God asked them to do. This is what I said. If you are confessing that God can provide, then the way that you act upon that, the way that you're obedient to that, is you give liberally because God's going to provide for you tomorrow. And I know that in a world of 
wealth management and 401ks and all that, it doesn't make sense because the prudent thing is to save, 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 save. Paul is saying give, 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 give. And it goes 180 degrees against what we say in the United States. This is why one has to accept the basic premise of Scripture that the reality of God is in the commandment. Because the commandment is the event horizon. You can't even see God's lips moving. You only have access to the commandment which was written down by the prophet. And so beyond that, the only other evidence is the doing of the commandment which came from the lips of God. It's a very serious matter. And this idea of God, you know, manifest as instruction, as commandment, undermines all of these Hellenistic conceptualizations of the deity. There's no conceptualization. There's an instruction. Give abundantly, out of abundance, for the sake of the others. And then God will be present while they also, by prayer, on your behalf, yearn for you because of the passing grace of God in you. So you're actually going through the motions of giving because the commandment told you to, but the liberality and the abundance of the gift comes from God, and the benefit is that the others will appreciate your behavior, which comes from God, and it will produce community. When they see that you give liberally all the time, that you have such an overwhelming faith in the ability of God, to give to you, you trust that God supplies what you need, then people will see that in spite of your giving, you continue to receive liberally from God, and they will praise God that you're receiving so much from God that you can continue to be liberal with your giving and continue to survive, that you're not giving it all till you get to zero and then you starve to death, that you're continuing to live, that you continue to have the ability and the means to be generous. And this is what people will yearn for so how does Paul end this section? Does he say, thanks for attending the lecture. Thanks for hearing me out. I really appreciate all your efforts. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody in Roman Corinth. No. What does he say? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Such a simple, simple premise. And yet people still get offended when you choose to thank God and not to thank them because we even now are still struggling to be serious about the proposition of God in scripture. And this gift is not just the stuff that you're giving away, but also the wisdom of his teaching. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Take care. the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network